Good morning, Familia. It is so good to worship with you this morning. And as we prepare to walk through God's Word, I just want to welcome those uh, who are here. If you're new to the church, uh, my name is Brent Sickle. I am one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And so whether you're here with us in person or worshiping with us online, I just want to welcome you. We are in week 11 already of our series in Matthew. I'm enjoying it each of the weeks as we get along. We get to add more and more stickers to our wall. And I know you're adding those stickers to your booklets as well. And over these last few weeks, we've been walking through those three chapters known as the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout this entire sermon, Jesus has been teaching us what it means to be people in the world, but not of the world. Or to put it a little bit differently today, how we can live in an alternate and new community. A new community of people that even as we live in the world, we live with an alternate worldview and under a different set of values. We are living in a worldview that has its alignment with King Jesus and his kingdom and values under which everything is done for his glory and our good. In our passage today, in Matthew chapter 7, we'll see how as disciples, we are to relate to God and to each other in a way that is controlled by our love for God and our love for one another. So as we look at Matthew chapter 7, I have three points that we'll walk through today. The first is a new community with each other. How to live in a new community empowered by God and the golden rule of the new community. How to live in a new community with each other. How to live in a new community empowered by God and the golden rule of the new community. As I was preparing for today and, and reading my different commentaries, one of my favorite ones is by a pastor named H.A. Ironside. Uh, he's an older pastor and commentary, but I love to read uh, what he writes because he includes little stories. And as he was recounting an incident in the life of a man named Bishop Potter, he says this of this story. Bishop Potter was sailing from Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. When he went on board, he found that another passenger was to share the cabin with him. After going to see the accommodations, he came up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he would never avail himself of this privilege, but he had just been to the cabin and had met the man that would occupy the room with him. Judging from his appearance, he was afraid that he not, might not be a trustworthy person. The purser accepted the valuables and responsibility for them, but remarked, It's all right, Bishop. I'll be very glad to take care of them for you. The other man has been up here as well and left his valuables for the same reason. <laughs> we laugh, right? We understand what is meant here as Jesus begins to delve into this passage and what it means to judge. I want to read these first few verses again for you from the Amplified Bible and see if it enriches the text a little bit for our understanding. It reads this. Do not judge and criticize and condemn 
others unfairly with an attitude of self-righteous superiority as though assuming the office of a judge so that you will not be judged unfairly. For just as you hypocritically judge others when you are sinful and unrepentant, so you will be judged in accordance with the standard of measure you use to pass out judgment. This judgment will be measured to you. Why do you look at the insignificant speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice and acknowledge the egregious log that is lodged in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First get the log out of your own eye, then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus begins with this imperative, do not judge. And it hooks the attention of us as listeners because it challenges an everyday activity we all participate in. We judge people by their looks, their clothes, their jobs, their cars, their homes, and a variety of other petty external standards. We like to judge people's tone and motive in what they say, especially as a culture where texting is a primary source of communication. We judge people on what they believe and value on a variety of topics and issues. And we like to judge people's actions in what they do. You see, there is something enjoyable that we have with judging. Pulling someone else down makes us feel good. Solomon in Proverbs says it this way. The words of a gossip are like a choice morsel. They go down into a man's inmost parts. It is in fact something within us that enjoys judging, which leads Jesus to describe the act of judging as a symptom of a bigger issue in the one who is doing the judging. Last week, as we looked at God's word, we looked at a disciple from whom material things were more important than spiritual things. In the same way, this week, we have one who has gone from the opposite extreme and has become overzealous about religious matters. This person has become judgmental of others without perceiving his own deep faults. How can that be? You see, it may be pride, which delights in putting others down so that we, in contrast, may be built up. It may be guilt, by which we often so find satisfaction in condemning others who refuse to condemn. The reason may be fairly obvious. You see, we understand what we're doing. And subconsciously, if not consciously, we are despising our own behaviors, which we either refuse or seem to be unable to deal with. And so we condemn it in others. You see, it's a symptom of our own guilt. Jesus is not teaching us here to take a disinterest in each other's sins and failings, but that we must establish a priority in looking into our own hearts and dealing with our own sins and ourselves before attempting to help others. 
all throughout Scripture, there's a valid and important role in our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ within this new community. And there are times where even Jesus says and, and calls us to rebuke one another. Luke 17, it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if, you, if he repents, forgive him. Again, in Luke 18, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. We even know Jesus stated earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And so Jesus' words today for us are not a call to avoid confrontation with our brothers and sisters in Christ over evident sin, but how do we handle judging within the community of believers? So how is Jesus calling us to judge one another? How are we to handle this thing that we struggle with every single day? Jesus gives us three points in understanding how do we live in relationship with one another. Look with me in verse 2. It says this, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus wants to remind us that we need to be mindful of the standards we are using. He says, be fair. Whatever principles or standards you are applying to others, make sure you're applying those to yourself as well. You see, that's the issue, right? We like to hold others to a different standard than we hold ourselves. We so easily extend grace to the things we struggle with in our lives, saying, man, uh, I just can't get over that. So it's okay. I'm, I'm good 90% of the time. Yet we hold others to such a high standard of perfection. Paul used the argument in Romans chapter 2 that God will judge us by the things that we know. And so whenever we judge someone, we need to hold to the standard of what is right and wrong from God's word. It's not our job to change or move the standard. We know what is right and wrong from God's word. And what Jesus is saying here is that what we expect of others, we should expect of ourselves. What we demand of others, we should demand of ourselves. The problem is a hypocritical person struggles with the same problems the Pharisees struggled with. Whatever they knew was right, they applied to others, but not to themselves. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus says these words directly to the, to the crowd as they're with the Pharisees. He says, you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You see, the Pharisees were hypocrites because they had standards that were different for themselves than everyone else. So the first thing that helps us understand how to live in community with one another is we need to be mindful of the standard we hold for others. The second thing Jesus says is in verse 3. 
It says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I picture Jesus here teaching and in this moment giving this illustration and, and it's sort of sarcastic, like, can you even believe what I'm saying? Why would you try to help someone if you can't see clearly? And not even that you can't see clearly, you're trying to get this small speck of sawdust out of your friend's eye, all the while trying to do it with a two-by-four in your own eye. I know it might be just me, but if my doctor has a two-by-four in their eye and trying to do eye surgery on me, that's not the doctor I want. You see, Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue here like he does every single time. He uses this series of reverse repetition to emphasize what he wants to focus on. It's not on the speck. It's not on the plank. It's what we do first. The, the crucial phrase is, first take it out. Jesus is not directing disciples never to judge others, but stressing that our first responsibility is to address our own sinfulness. We must pay attention to our own sins in our lives. But they so easily steer us away and cloud our vision. Let me put it to you a little differently. Consider how dangerous it is to attend a marriage conference by yourself. You see, if we go without our spouse, it changes the way we listen. We go, the speaker talks, it can lead us to rejoice over the blessings we have in marriage or the godly self-examination, but sadly can also lead us to list all the counsel the speaker has for our spouse, the one who really needed to hear the message. And then as we return home, we say, honey, honey, you should have been there. The speaker was amazing. He suggested three ways for me to be a better husband, but clearly outlined 19 ways for you to be a better wife. So let me share the top five with you. I know if I did that, I'd be on the couch. That's not how we act. You see, the order is judge oneself first. Then we can clearly help not condemn another. The reality is we see here in Scripture that the brother's speck is just that. A small issue that needs correction. The real danger Jesus is talking about here is a judgmental spirit. Because it strangles our love for one another. Jesus outlines this in Luke chapter 18 as he records the prayer of a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, these robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day and give a tenth of all I get. Meanwhile, the tax collectors crouched in a corner at the bottom of the steps, 
fearful to approach God, crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, if we are going to help each other as a community of believers, if we're going to help each other by correctly judging, we must become like the tax collector. The struggle that Jesus says is there, though, is the hypocritical person is really good at assessing everyone except for one person, himself. We must pay close attention to our own sin in order for us to be able to help one another. The third thing Jesus says here in verse 6 is we must be discerning of our judgment. It says, do not give the dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This imagery sounds uh, slightly out of place here, but it's giving us this imagery of, of you don't give valuable things to someone or something that doesn't value it. In the same way, when we're seeking to help one another, we must exercise care to do what would be appreciated and beneficial. We need discernment in how we correctly judge one another, but even more so, we need discernment in how we share what God says with others. We are called to speak the truth in love. But there are times when the words of truth, such as the teaching of Jesus here, will not be heard. And Proverbs gives us clarity on that. Proverbs 23.9 says, Do not speak to a fool, for he will scorn wisdom of the words. Similarly, Jesus says the same things to disciples in Matthew 10. That as they go, some towns will neither receive them nor listen to their words. And so we must be discerning in our judgment. If we just run around giving out these judgment words and people are not ready and cultivated their hearts by the Spirit to hear, the response may not be correct. But that doesn't mean we stop loving them praying for them or asking God to do what only he can do in changing their hearts. You see, our role as a community of believers is not to harass people with the gospel, but to invite people with the gospel. Not just in what we say, but in how we live, in our interactions with one another. That is the biggest voice to our world is when we adorn the gospel with our words and actions, especially as we judge. Paul adds these words from Romans chapter 14. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to God. So that each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
if we believe that God's truly in control, that he is the ultimate judge, it will help us turn from our hypocrisy enabling us to build each other up rather than tearing each other down. These words are tough. This is not an easy passage to read. So how do we do this, especially when we're usually blind to our own faults and so inclined to hypocrisy? The answer is we'll never be able to. We will never be able to overcome this failure by ourselves. As a matter of fact, there's nothing in this entire Sermon on the Mount that we can achieve rightly or wholly in and of our own power. The only way we can live out all that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, being a new people in a new community, is being empowered by God. And we know that empowerment comes as we put our faith in Jesus and we learn to ask God for the right motives and he empowers us with his Holy Spirit to pursue them. That's why Jesus, in verse 7, transitions and begins to talk about prayer again. What he's saying is we need God's power to live rightly in all areas of our life to value spiritual treasures, to trust God rather than worry about our future, and to judge rightly. To live within this new community, we need to be empowered by God. Look with me here at verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds is one who knocks, the door will be opened. There's a television show that I like to watch. It's called Everybody Hates Chris. And it's a show about the growing up of this young boy and the life struggles he deals with. But it's done from the perspective of the boy, but with this like background uh, uh, mind commentary of him as an older self. And it's voiced by Chris Rock. And there's a variety of fun little episodes that sort of epitomize what growing up feels like. In one of my favorite episodes, the main character, Chris, wants to buy a leather jacket because it makes him look cool. His friends suggest that he would save up his allowance. But Chris says he has never heard about allowances. He didn't know that they existed. He thought that was something that only happened on TV. But he got up the courage to ask his father. His father was always working, sometimes seemed grumpy, and there never seemed to be a good time to ask him for money. Then one day, it looked like a good time to ask his father. And so Chris gets up the courage at the dinner table and says, Dad, can you give me an allowance? Immediately, this is the father's response. I'm not giving you money for walking around doing nothing. An allowance? 
I allow you to sleep here at night. I allow you to eat them potatoes. I allow you to use my lights. I allow you to drink my Kool-Aid. I allow you to nibble on your green beans. I allow you to look at the TV. I allow you to run up my gas bill. I allow you to walk up my stairs. I allow you to ask me these ridiculous questions. Why should I give you an allowance when I have already paid for everything you do? That picture is so contrary to the God Jesus talks about when he tells us to ask, seek, and knock. Just as Chris needed a leather jacket, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we have permission to ask, seek, and knock of our Heavenly Father because we have a Father who gives. Amen? Verse 11, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, as disciples, we have entered by faith into the kingdom of heaven. Then we have God as our Father. And if God is our Father, He is a generous and giving Father. You see, the tone of the Father sets everything. A child will pattern his requests on what he knows of his father's temperament. Just like with Chris, if the father is ill-tempered and stingy, the child will ask for little. And in carefully and well-chosen moments. But if the father is good-natured and generous, the child will present his, own, his needs openly and with freedom. Jesus is telling us the same thing spiritually. If God were like the pagans imagined him, he would be selfish and vengeful. And the one who prays must be on guard or even try to bribe God with his prayers. But if God is gracious as Jesus teaches here, then we need not be afraid to ask him for whatever we need at any time. And so we can ask God for the empowerment to live all that he has called us to live throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The thing is, we must ask. That's the second important truth. God not only wants to provide for us, but he desires a relationship with us. We have a God that cares for us even when we're unresponsive children. But he desires a relationship with us. And so we need to communicate with God in prayer. James 4 says this, you do not have because you do not ask God. Jesus gives us the same thing in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. God promises to give us the good gifts that we need. He promises to give us all that we need to live out what it means to be in the kingdom of God. The third principle we see here in being in this new community empowered by God is that we are to keep praying. We are to keep praying 
This does not mean that we practice rote, repetitious prayers. Jesus has already dismissed that in chapter 6. We do not get more by repeating our request over and over and over again. What it means is God does not grow weary of our asking, our seeking, and our knocking. Because we have a God who always hears and always answers. We're called to live in this new community with each other. We're called to live in this new community empowered by God. So what's the golden rule of this new community? Look with me here at verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. At last, we come to what is known as the golden rule. And we see that this is Jesus' summary. Not only of the law, but the prophets. It's in the summary of the entire message that he's been speaking on this Sermon on the Mount for the last three chapters. Remember, if we look back at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he talks about he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now he concludes here in Matthew 7 that this is the law and the prophets. But there's something unique and important about this verse. Even if it's one of the best known sayings by Christ. You see, I want us to see that it's expressed in this positive form. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. You can find many parallels uh, uh, to this verse uh, all throughout history. There are various people and religious writings that have written on this. The great Rabbi Hillel wrote this. What is hateful to, your, uh, what is hateful to yourself, do not... Uh, sorry. What is hateful to yourself, do to... Uh, I cannot talk. <laughs> what is hateful to others, do to no other. That is the whole law. The rest is commentary. And in various other writings from religions and philosophers, whether it's Confucius, Epicus, the Stoics, or the hymns of faith of Buddhism, they all talk about this in the negative form. Do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But by contrast, we see Jesus turn the statement around saying, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. You see, it has always been possible for us to keep the negative version of this rule. It's essentially sound and necessary legal principle. If we're to get along in a civilized society, we must discipline ourselves so we do not injure or hurt others. We must obey the law, stop at all the stop signs, pay our bills, avoid overt acts of prejudice, and many other such rules and regulations. But this looks so different when we look at our obligations positively. Now it's no longer a matter of legal principle, doing what needs to be done. But it's now a transformed life. Which is why we cannot keep this golden rule or any other standard Jesus sets forth in, these la forth in these last three chapters by ourselves. You see, if we're operating by the law, our minds are on ourselves selfishly. To begin to fix our attention on the needs, the cares, the loves, the joys, the hopes and dreams of others. 
We must be a transformed people in this new community. In other words, we must turn from the demands of the law entirely to receive a new heart from God. We are to live in a new community with each other. We are to live in this new community empowered by God. And we are to live with this new golden rule with the heart of God foremost. But living in this new community begins with the confession of our failure. Followed by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But it continues as we put the needs and wants of other people's first. Because it's only when we've learned to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we can begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what Jesus means when he calls us to live in the kingdom of God as a community of believers. One of the things we do as a community of believers is to celebrate what Christ has done on the cross for us. And as a community of believers, we get to participate today in what Christ has done for us. And we get to celebrate in anticipation of his return. As we partake in communion, if you're a Christian, this celebration is for you. If you're not a Christian or you're still seeking or asking questions, I'm going to ask that you would just wait and observe. Examine God's word. Examine what we talked about today. Get to know Jesus more. Get to know him first in your life. We also know that as we prepare for communion, the Bible calls us to examine ourselves. And in light of our scripture today, self-examination is so required. So I'm going to ask you to take a few seconds in silent self-reflection. And I want you to answer the question, what might be in your life that you need God to remove? Let's reflect. Dear Father, reveal to us that which is unclean in our hearts. Delve past our actions and help us see the revealed motives of our hearts. Lord, we are thankful that you are faithful and just and promise to forgive us 
of all unrighteousness. Lord, that's what you did on the cross. You forgave us of our sins. You gave us uh, a new heart. You freed us from the bondage of sin and now allow us to live this new life for you as a new community that visually represents your kingdom in our world. Prepare our hearts now to take of your communion. We ask these things in your son's holy name. Amen. You're going to take your cups and peel back the first layer. The Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. You may partake. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for when you ever you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for this opportunity both to remember what you have done and celebrate in anticipation your return. Lord, we thank you that even as you went up to heaven, you sent the helper, your Holy Spirit, to live within us and to empower us to live out your kingdom here on earth. We ask these things in your name. Amen.